Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Catherine Viner is editor-in-chief of The Guardian, a position she has held since June 2015. She joined The Guardian as a writer in 1997. She was appointed deputy editor of The Guardian in 2008 and later launched the award-winning Guardian Australia in 2013. She also served as editor of The Guardian U.S. based in New York City. Viner is the 12th editor-in-chief of The Guardian during its nearly 200 years of publishing and is the first woman to lead it. She will be awarded an honorary degree at the Graduate Center's commencement ceremonies held in Lincoln Center on May 30th. Welcome, Catherine Viner, to the Thought Project podcast. It's absolutely wonderful to be here, Tanya. First of all, congratulations on receiving an honorary degree from the Graduate Center. Uh, We are thrilled that you have accepted this honor, and I think it's a symbolic of of a bow to the importance of journalism at this moment and how well The Guardian is reporting on seminal events that are taking place in the world right now. Um, You took the reins of The Guardian uh, in 2015, apparently uh, three years ago this week, uh, when the business model for modern newspapers was failing. You have effectively navigated the challenges of running an international news organization in the digital age with innovative business practices. And since taking over the Guardian mothership, I want to call it that, (laughs) you've expanded readership and subscribers. You've increased your presence in Brussels and Berlin. The Guardian is now operating with offices on at least three continents that I'm aware of. Oh, no, all continents. All All continents. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know about the office part. I've got three editions. You're right. Editions in three continents. Three, yes. (laughs) And how have you done this in this business climate, at least in America, where newspapers are cutting staff and even worse, shuttering their doors. Mm. How have you done that? Well, um, the global strategy, I mean, we have gone from losing uh, uh, 58 million pounds in year one to just uh, 90 million pounds this year. It's still a loss, but we're on uh, track to break even this year, which will be the first time we've done that for a very long time. Um, We've been very serious about cost. So uh, you mentioned American uh, newspapers having to cut back. We've cut back uh, quite dramatically, too, uh, all in a voluntary uh, basis. Um, But we've also brought in a new uh, plank to the business model, which is revenue from uh, reader contributions. So our readers have always been very committed to The Guardian. They've always supported us in um, very voluble ways. Um, But it's the first time we'd introduced this um, uh, uh, model. And it's it's very unusual in Britain. I think it's more common here um, with smaller uh, news outlets, perhaps none on the scale of The Guardian. We've got 175 million uh, browsers worldwide, so we're very, very large. 
Um, and what we found uh, was that readers really, really wanted to contribute. And this idea that if you contribute then you um, and you give us some money, then you pay to keep The Guardian free and open for others who maybe can't afford to do so, perhaps in uh, poorer countries or just poorer people in your own country. And that message really seemed to hit home for people. I think we've been doing journalism that um, lots of people don't do we uh, we're very committed to the more, most serious stuff we're very committed to the stuff you know around the environment say or around poverty that I think others uh, don't do as much um, and uh, we find actually that readers say that they're giving us money for that most serious journalism and that's what's so wonderful because the business model has been led down this track of clickbait and trying for massive scale and just cha- all chasing the same thing and what we've really discovered in a very heartening way is that, that you don't need to do that now I'm I'm not sure that model works for everyone. Um, I think it, um, you know, there aren't many progressive news organisations in the world um, and people know The Guardian is both progressive and committed to the facts and that means a lot to them. And, and we've also it, got a close relationship with our readers, which I think sh- matters a lot. Sure, you, you've uh, mentioned that you work really hard to cement the relationship with your readers. Um, and you're also at Trust, which is a very different uh structure of operating and it's not something that would uh, people in the United States would be familiar with. The Guardian's ownership model is really wonderful. Yes, we're owned by the Scott Trust, which means um, that we have one shareholder only and that's the Scott Trust. We have no proprietor um, and uh, the Scott Trust only job is to make sure that um, I, as the editor-in-chief, am protected from commercial and political interference. Um, So if we were to make a profit, which I hope we will do uh, in the next couple of years, then that money has to be ploughed back into journalism. There is no one who can take a dividend from The Guardian. Um, So people can be certain that when they give money to The Guardian, that it's going to the things that matter most to the journalism. And that's very exciting. That's very unique um, and not something that we hear anything about in the United States. You also have been quoted, and in, in I'm speaking to you as the editor-in-chief, obviously, about your respect for good reporting and about serious journalism uh, to the effect that, quote, it takes time and effort, carefully uncovers the facts, holds the powerful to account, and interrogates ideas and arguments that that speak to the urgency of the moment, but less like Europe in its, uh, uh, and and lasts more than a day, excuse me, lasts more than a day. Um, is this how the Guardian approached joining the Panama Papers Consortium, which was a massive collaborative of investigative journalism? Uh, and also, similarly, you joined with the New York Times on the Edward Snowden paper. Uh, oh, they story. joined with us. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so, so I mean, that's serious, serious collaboration, serious investigative reporting. Yeah, I really believe in uh, collabor- collaborative projects. I mean, they're very difficult to pull off. Um, lots of journalists, I have to say, particularly in the United States, um, have a um, history of being very competitive with each other rather than necessarily joining together. Adversarial even, perhaps. Right. Um, and, and yet the truth is, is that if, uh, j- journalism, if, if, if the media is to remind people why we exist, uh, why we exist in democracies is to hold the powerful to account and it's to do things that matter to civic society. And often you can do that more powerfully together. We saw it more recently with the Cambridge Analytica um, exclusives, which um, we got. Right. And we decided to share with the New York Times and with Channel 4 TV company in Britain. They both added wonderful things to the reporting. And it, it ended up being a much bigger story, I think, than it would have been if we'd done it on our own. Yeah, because you're leveraging across across 
you know, geography and and resources, exactly. right? Exactly. And there's some legal protections in it as well because obviously you've got the First Amendment here, which is uh, which is a good thing. Very strong. <laughs> yes. Very strong. Um, it, to what extent, given you know this collaborative work, um, how do you think? Uh, the impact was of the Guardian's readership, the Guardian's reporting, and the response to the WikiLeaks story. I mean, we're still we're still getting drips and drabs on WikiLeaks because of the Russia investigation. Uh, and, and obviously, Cambridge Analytica is playing played a huge role in that story. But still, to this day, there's there's uh, reporting of WikiLeaks emails. And and it still continues to animate uh, that investigation. And I think um, at the beginning, uh, l- lots of what uh, WikiLeaks were involved with was very uh, powerful and important stuff, which helped us report on really terrible um, events around the world. Um, and it's important not to forget that. Uh, um, and that was important. But obviously what's happened more recently and subsequently um, um, and Julian Assange has alienated uh, a lot of uh, people who would have once been his allies, and uh, um, it's quite a sad story, really. Um, do you think uh, it's fair to say uh, at this moment right now that democracy as a model of governance is under fire, indeed even threatened globally? Uh, we are witnessing a global rise of authoritarianism and nationalism from New Delhi to Washington, D.C., to Warsaw and Budapest. What is at stake in journalism right now? Well, that's a huge um, question because so much is at stake. And I think I think you're right. The challenges um, are on, I think, are on four different levels. I think at the global level, um, there are, uh, I think, d- the, driven by technology. These technological changes are unsettling to people, even if technological changes end up being really great, um, really positive for society. Um, it's quite very disruptive to, I think, who we are. If you think about Mark Zuckerberg claiming he's going to cure all disease, when you think, well, that's lovely. Thank you, Mark. That'd be great. But actually, <laughs> if you think about what that means to us as humans, that's very disruptive. I mean, we are, are most of our conception of the end of life is preceded by disease and so on. So what does that mean? Even just, even just down to um, uh, self-driving cars, I think that's very disruptive to our views of ourselves. And, and similarly at a global level, um, what's happening to the climate, I think, is very disturbing to people. We can see the changes it's quite obvious what's happening every report is actually worse than people predicted um, and yet and we know by the way just the way we live we're contributing to making that worse and yet there is no way uh, accessibly to stop that there is no structural um, global efforts to prevent that and so it's this unsettling feeling at a global level then that follows down at the national level where we've had so many political shocks whether that's starting I think we started it you could say with Brexit obviously yes, Trump's election yes. look what's happening in, in Italy this week um, I think at a local level, um, what's been very acute in Britain is what austerity has done to uh, local life. And I think there's well, been... Well, this a, is my next question, uh-huh. actually. So there's been a feeling, I think, for yes. decades um, that community bonds are weakening and that public space is being sold off. Um, and, and the, you know, the public arena is somehow being uh, minimised. And then finally, at a personal level, where we see throughout the Western world, 
really terrible, disturbing figures on depression in young people and loneliness in old people. And if you look at every one of those layers, I think they all come together to a really a, a globally um, disruptive, disturbing moment that's happened really quickly. It's been a very dramatic shift. And there's a, a number of causes from uh, what happened in the um, uh, the financial crash of 2008, where the people who caused right. it seem to have done better out of it than anyone else and so on. There's many uh, similar... Um, I think yeah. I think that 2008 was really a major turning point when you look at what happened in the EU specifically. One, you had the financial crash. Two, you had a migration crisis of stupendous... I mean, the largest flow of human beings since World War II. And this was followed also at the same time by the invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea... And then you're you're looking at the Brexit vote. Uh, speaking of which, is do you think um, that the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump had had similar impulses in retrospect? And I, quite frankly, was dismissive, and I'll, I'll totally totally own that I was dismissive of this idea. But now I think there are some parallels particularly on growing income inequality and um, also looking at a constructed, in the case of the United States, it was a constructed immigration crisis because it's not really one when you look at the data. And the migrant crisis in Europe from uh, Syria and and northern Africa into Europe, you were talking about, you know, 5,000 people a day for months and months. Um what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I I now think that there are some, but I'd love to hear your your ideas on that. Well, I, I absolutely do think they have common um, threads, and I think a lot of it is about alienation. Actually, a sort of alienation from, um, a, you know, you see some people uh, getting richer and richer, while your lives are not getting better at all. And just to tell you a. a a wryly amusing story on this subject, which was after the Brexit vote, um, um, I remember saying to some American friends, well, at least uh, Hillary Clinton will see this and realise that the danger to her is very real and she will surely choose a running mate who will answer the concerns of the white working class, which is, I, I have that on record that I said that. Wow. And then on the day of the election in conference, I said to the team, I said, Donald Trump's going to be uh, president. Anyway, nobody believed me. But um, I think, you know, these, these are our global threads. And I think Hillary Clinton didn't see it coming. And I don't think the Democrats, from what I can see, are seeing it now. Um, and everyone, you know, it's just, it's such a disruptive moment. Well, I will tell you, speaking on good counsel, a colleague of mine uh, who's in South Carolina, which is a big primary state in the U.S. presidential election, uh, she she just indicated to me that Elizabeth Warren gave the Democratic caucus in the House legislature $8,000 without any solicitation on their part. So I think she's running. Or oh, she's positioning <laughs> she's positioning herself to run. It would seem because you don't do that. You mm. don't give the the Democratic caucus in the state legislature eight thousand dollars unless you're interested. He's going to be tough to beat again, though, don't you think? I think it's. Uh, I think given the way he has conducted himself, the attacks on all the institutions, uh, the attacks on the investigation, the attacks on the media, is it's putting, I think, the entire country in this this state of 
disbelief uh, by those of us who may oppose him. And on his side, he's just shoring people up over and over again. And, and, and as a matter of fact, his approvals now are like up to 40 percent. So that um, that is very disheartening. But but I I get it. Well, it seems to there's been a, such a shift in um, what people believe to be true and what people don't believe to be true. And I think he's been very um, effective I agree. at spreading uh, disinformation and fake news and misunderstanding, which is obviously very disturbing uh, when you work in the media. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you may have heard the Leslie Stahl conversation. Uh, she's correspondent, you know, with 60 Minutes. She was speaking um, about her first meeting with Trump after the election. She was with her boss from CBS, and he, she was in Trump Tower, and he... Uh, he kept talking about how bad the media is. And she said, look, you got the nomination. What, what's your problem? Why are you doing this? This is old and it's not very, it's not very uh, impressive. And he said, I'm attacking the media because when you write negative stories about me, they're not going to believe it. Yeah. Wow. So completely wow. cynical. Completely cynical. Completely cynical. Through, yeah. So speaking of speaking of uh, not only disinformation, but when you think about when you think about uh, a comparison between Britain and the US, the the Brexit vote and the situation that led to outcomes that were shocking to both countries in, in different ways. Yesterday, you may have seen it, the New York Times published a story about Britain and about the austerity approach by Tory governments, really cutting city budgets, looking uh, looking less like uh, the, the report reporter was like, looking less like Europe and more like the U.S., uh, and, and less like Europe because of their general social welfare approach to liberal governance, with some exceptions, of course. It seems that voters in the UK are not much different from, different from voters in mostly red state America. <laughs> uh, and it reminds me of that great read, What's the Matter with Kansas? You might know about that by American political scientist Thomas Frank. Uh, in who lays out the facts that American voters have been voting against their self-interest for years. Indeed, in this case, it was Prescott, England, which the New York Times uses as an example. Uh, they're selling off public space to make money so they can make payroll for police and teachers. But now in the United States, even in the age of Trump, we are beginning to see the first visages of a backlash in red state America, where you may have been reading about, and of course the Guardian's covered it, strikes by teachers in West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona, Oklahoma. I mean, people barely are taking home $1,000 a month in Oklahoma as a teacher. They can't support themselves. The United States, as you probably know, has the largest income gap, uh, inequality uh, gap between the highest 1% and the rest of us. Uh, even with degrees, African Americans and women are not able to make up that gap, and they're not making more money. So there's a stagnation in wages. Uh, I think it's very similar between Britain and the United States. And what's what's your view on this? Well, I mean, it's a very strong piece, and I think it was that um, the sort of piece you can only d you could you can do with if you have a distance on the subject. And that's why I thought it was so powerful. Um, I'm not. I mean, I wouldn't say though that. Uh, I mean, I think most of the people quoted in the story were opposed to the 
cuts and uh, certainly the area is talking about, which is in, Fair enough. Ni- Fair in enough. Liverpool. They certainly will sure. not be voting Conservative in Liverpool anytime sure. soon. And remember, there is a hung parliament in Britain at the moment. There That's is not tr- actually a Conservative majority government. So just... Fair and, enough. But, no, but, fair and, also, enough. and also, just to carry on being defensive <laughs> of Britain for one minute, we do still have a fantastic health service, even if it's yes. uh, um, um, challenged financially. Um, it's still uh, the health service and the BBC are the two most cherished institutions in the country. And by the way, I think the BBC um, having a good, strong state-funded state broadcaster like the BBC, I do think, protects you from having two different types of news. Like, you know, it seems to me True, in America, like the you know, United States, yeah, between th- Fox and the rest yes, of them. Yes, I do think. I, I agree do think with that's that. Some kind of protection, um, but there is no question uh, that the la- since 2010, when the Conservative-led coalition government brought in austerity, um, there's no question that the model uh, that they had in mind is more American than than European. I mean, it's often been true, hasn't it, that Britain is somewhere between the two. That's true. Um, That's true. Uh, but uh, and there's challenges all across uh, Europe, but generally not around the social contract. Um, and I wouldn't say they have a huge amount of public support for what they've been doing on this. On this. Well, I hope the Liberal Party gets its act together. Labor, <laughs> labor. So uh, s- since 2016, the the election and Hillary Clinton's loss. There has been a literal uprising by women in America, and I I actually refer to it as the Hillary effect. I have never seen anything like it since second wave feminism in the 70s. Uh, The Women's March went global. It was everywhere, including Antarctica. Um, (laughs) The avalanche of women declaring... Uh, their candidacies for office in this past week, seven women won, uh, Democrats won their congressional primary races in like a lot of red states, mm-hmm. Kentucky, uh, Texas, it's just incredible. A black woman won the primary for governor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first time in America. Um, how how's the Guardian? I mean, I've I've read articles and clearly I see that you're covering me too. But when you go into an editorial meeting, what are you talking about? This is a big <laughs> big thing happening. It's very exciting, and uh, we'll just look at Ireland um, on, yes, on, on the, over the weekend. I mean, it was just the most moving, beautiful. Uh, Indeed. Outcome. And uh, it was a really moving and beautiful campaign as well. I mean, everything about it, um, uh, you know, from the um, from the Taoiseach down was um, was really exciting. Um, So, yes, that seems like a big feminist moment, too. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in terms of how we operate, obviously, it's one of the biggest stories in the world. And I think that's really interesting. I think the role of men within that is also quite interesting. Uh, because I think that, um, th- their role is challenged and we see some quite um, unpleasant aspects of that as well and concurrently. Um, but I think, you know, it's um, I have a sort of a job to do to make sure that we reflect it in our coverage and make sure that every we think about um, uh, sort of representation in terms of everything we do, every decision we make, you know, women, how, who, which women's voices we use, which photographs we use, you know, which women's stories we tell. Um, and you know how can we make sure that it's a kind of really plural kind uh, plural women you know so it's lots of women in color of color and so on it's uh, very very incredible and it's it'll be interesting to see where it all goes there's a great quote from Rebecca Solnit where she said this insurrectionary moment is already subsiding but things will not be what they were oh yes 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 that's wonderful yeah that is indeed wonderful so um 
we're going to see where it goes. I'm very excited yeah. about prospects in the fall for the uh, the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, reports by human rights groups, and I want to go back to some more sobering, uh, sobering developments, such as Freedom House here in the United States, and even The Economist indicate a global downward trend in functioning healthy democracies. Now, this is not surprising because we are now witnessing an increased attack on journalists. Uh, jailings in Turkey, shootings in the Balkans, a journalist in Nicaragua was murdered last month while he was reporting live on Facebook. I recently spoke with the Council of Europe Human Rights Commissioner Dunja Miratovic, a former colleague of mine in Sarajevo, and she actually, actually asked me to pose a question to you and said, how can the Guardian help in overcoming human rights fatigue in Europe on harassment of journalists and for human mm-hmm. rights defenders in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. This is a hard this is a mm-hmm. hard thing, the fatigue. The fatigue's interesting. And um, what I generally I generally think the answer to most questions for journalists is um, go back to reporting. Just go and report. Go and tell the stories because um, there are always stories to be told that can be told these days in many different ways, uh, many different formats from podcasts to videos to uh, the the, the writing the stories in the old school way. Uh, But I think, um, you know, the answer is not to endlessly do opinion columns and so on. It's get back to real fact based reporting. Shoe leather, so to speak. And I do think collaboration is another important technique. We've we've discussed it briefly, uh, but in uh, in April we launched the Daphne Project. Um, So this is... um, continuing the work of Daphne Caruana Galizia who's the journalist who was assassinated in Malta last year oh yes Um, and what we wanted to say with the project is you can uh, assassinate one of our journalists but um, one journalist but we many more will fill their place and so uh, we've now we've got a global collaboration involving 18 news organizations do Deutsche Zeitung Le Monde uh, the New York Times we're working together to continue those investigations and I think that sends a real message that um, you know we're not expendable we're going to keep going um, and stay at it yes stay and, and the most important thing is the story but um, it's it's um, you know, I think more and more democratic, even democratically elected leaders no longer see the part of me- democracy as essential underpinning. And this is what is so um, disturbing. You know, Trump dis- described reporters as enemies of the people, uh, which is a very disturbing development. And of course, um, You're taking to- a page out of Stalin. Oh, uh, indeed. And back to the um, back to the Guardian. I mean, you you may know that um, a uh, Republican congressman, Greg Gianforte from Montana, he um, attacked a Guardian reporter yes, when he asked the question. And again, I, I find that uh, I'm surprising that that isn't a bigger story. Um, outrage in, in the uh-huh. US. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, collaborations, I, I do want to give a shout out. I don't think a lot of people know this, but what prompted you to reach out to the Parkland High School oh. uh, journalism uh, program in the newspaper there and to invite them to edit, guest edit for a weekend? I was 
Well, I was so moved by that, I almost cried. It was I wonderful, it was, wasn't it? I think it was an amazing thing to do. Tell, tell, tell us about yes, that. Well, it was, it was a, so the Guardian US has 45 journalists here, and I'm sure you noticed that uh, Mayor de Blasio said it was his favorite newspaper over the weekend. Yes, yeah, I did I see that. our listeners think that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's up to them, but I'm glad he read us. I'm glad if anyone reads us. For now it is. <laughs> yeah. Next week it could change. <laughs> um, but um, So we have 45 journalists here, and the deputy editor of Guardian US, they were just sort of... Um, brainstorming ideas of how to cover the uh, anti-gun march um, and the idea was well what about if we had some of the Parkland pupils to um, cover the march and they thought well why don't they guest edit for the weekend and um, we went to the pupils from the um, from the school newspaper um, Eagle Eye I think it's called from memory and um, the project was so wonderful you know they got they got uh, an interview with uh, Bernie Sanders they got a lovely message from George Clooney they just did these lovely creative things they and were doing stand up interviews yeah. too it's yeah. an amazing thing to watch yeah and I think it's um, at, uh, more seriously I mean it was it was so exemplary in terms of a, a collaborative project I think and I think it also really showed a way in perhaps in a way that the Parkland students generally have shown a way for how future um, you know positive uh, developments can happen you know they're a really inspiring group they are they are they're they're leading the country it's wonderful to watch them um, I just want to ask a couple other questions um, Trump is going to be visiting the UK in yes, July. Indeed. Yes, uh, it's a, called a working <laughs> meeting, and uh, I don't think that Theresa May wants wants him in London, where I'm sure the streets will be filled with uh, protest. Uh, won't this be quite an unusual um, uh, visit? Uh, because given the animosity Trump has had for Europe. Um, the special relationship that has always existed um, doesn't seem to be so special in the Trump era. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's gone out of his way to dismiss uh, most of the post-World War II Euro-Atlantic relationships. Uh, our best friends in Europe are befuddled, shocked. Uh, so how how will you cover this visit? I mean, I think it's really going to be, I think, uncomfortable. I think it's interesting, Trump's relationships with European leaders, because he seems to um, like the leaders most who flatter him the most. But then there's been interesting research saying that they don't necessarily get the best outcomes from him. So it's quite interesting. I think, you know, Theresa May came here quite early on, was photographed holding his hand, which went down very well uh, did not go down very well very in Britain. Well in Britain um, yeah. So, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, but then uh, his relationship with Macron is interesting. He went over um, and had the full pomp and ceremony. I think it was on Bastille Day, as I remember. Um, and the French people who who protest a lot, they're you know very good at pr protesting. They, there was not huge protest for that visit, which surprised me. Um, I think um, I expect that to be different uh, in July uh, in Britain. Um, I expect there to be considerable protests, um, and uh, we will cover every bit of it. Um, I expect there to be lots of global interest in that story. Yeah, I think that's a big story. Um, one last uh, question, and it's really sort of um, it's sort of uh, personal in a way, not really, not personal, personal, but two national newspapers in the United States. The New York Times has an online column for philosophers in the academy called the Stone Column. And at the Washington Post, a very popular monkey cage, monkey cage platform, which is for academics only. 
these are platforms that um, have gotten a lot of attention, particularly Monkey Cage, and it's edited by academics with with the Washington Post. Would the Guardian think <laughs> about such a platform? Because here's why: in the age of the 21st century, uh, particularly those of us who who work in public institutions in the in the public universities, and I would say I'm sure I have many colleagues in the UK that are in the academy, um, would they be interested in thinking about such a platform? For academics, because this is the uh, the time. There are more platforms now to share critical research and information in the age of, quite frankly, propaganda and fake news, which I, I hate that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because because Trump's co-op, yeah, it, hasn't yeah, it? and yeah, I, yeah. it's not our branding. I mean, let's just go back to Stalin. It's propaganda. That's really what we're mm-hmm. talking about here. Uh, but. Um, I would think, I mean, The Guardian has leaned forward in so many different ways. Uh, so many people in the academy love the newspaper. A number of our faculty have been published in it. Um, so I'm just sort of throwing it out there. <laughs> well, it sounds like a really good idea. I'm not familiar with it, um, with the monkey cage. I will send you um, a link. I, well, I'll find it. I can find it. Um, all I'd say, though, I'd be, I would be quite sad because clearly the Washington Post have already got the best name. I mean, monkey cage, uh, what could be better? So that would be true. hard to uh, hard to top. Uh, hard to top. <laughs> Catherine Viner, thank you very much for being with us today. Congratulations again. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Catherine Viner, the editor-in-chief of The Guardian. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City, with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman and Jack Horowitz. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.